What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Scott, thank you very much. I'm Tyler Matheson in for Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. The consumer just won't quit. The latest retail sales coming in stronger than expected. Investors not too happy about it, however. So could Jamie Dimon be right that rates could remain higher for longer? We will discuss that one. Plus, Chinese cars are flooding the West But are they a real threat to U.S. automakers? We will head to Hong Kong and speak to the analyst who covers it all for Jefferies. And some of what he says may surprise you. And Ernst & Young launching its first ever deal barometer, and they are sharing the results exclusively with us this hour. But we begin with today's markets. Dom Chu covering the numbers for us. Dom. So, Tyler, we're in the red, fractionally so, with the underperformance in that kind of tech-heavier Nasdaq trade. We'll start with the Dow, which is off just about one quarter of 1%. That equates to 100 points to the downside, 37,258 the last trade there. The S&P 500 at 47.33, off about two-thirds of 1% or 32 points to the downside. And the Nasdaq Composite currently stands at 14,809, just about 135 points to the downside or down roughly one full percent. One place to keep a close eye on, Tyler mentioned those stronger-than-expected retail sales data out this morning. What had that is done and gone and done is pushed interest rates higher. People selling off government bonds on the U.S. Treasury side, pushing yields to 4.09%. We were close to just around 4.12% at the session high so far today. And what this does do is put us at the highest yield levels for the 10-year, going back to just roughly December 13th. It's not, again, near the 5% mark that we saw at the cycle high so far, But this move higher off the lows has a lot of investors paying some attention. And where that's playing out a lot more is in valuation, specifically with regard to growth-oriented and technology stocks. If you take a look at the biggest stocks in the NASDAQ composite and the S&P 500 for weighting, it's that mega-cap technology trade. Microsoft down about two-tenths of 1%, Apple down three-quarters of 1%, and north of 1% losses for NVIDIA, Alphabet, Amazon as well. So keep an eye on those moves there in big technology. Interest rates are part of that story. We'll see if that trend continues. It's a rocky start to the year in 2024, Ty. All right, Dom, thank you very much. We'll see you in a little bit. Let's start with the consumer and the latest retail sales numbers came in stronger than expected, up six-tenths of a percent in December. Now, you couple that with a continued strength in the labor market, and the Fed may be in, well, no rush to lower interest rates, something J.P. Morgan Chase's CEO, Jamie Dimon, touched on earlier today, especially the implications for commercial real estate. If we have a soft landing, which is possible, and rates don't go higher, which is possible, it'll be a small problem. If we have a hard landing and rates don't go higher, it'll be a bigger problem. And if we have a hard land with higher rates, which I still think is possible, it'll be a bigger problem. Because That's inflation all. goes up even it, it, with it, the well, or, Interest rates are like cosmological constant. Yeah. Anything which has cash flows is worth less. All right, our next guest agrees that this is probably as good as it gets for the economy. And while the odds have steadily improved, he still sees a 25% chance of a recession less next year, or this year, excuse me. 
Let's explore why with Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics, along with CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Welcome to both of you. Mark, let me begin with you. If the economy's performance is about as good as it gets, why do you say that recession risks are still elevated at 25 percent, down from the 50 percent you thought was likely last year? Didn't happen. But why do you think recession risks are still elevated in an economy that is performing well? Well, Tyler, I don't think we can uh, uh, feel entirely comfortable about the economic outlook until the Fed starts lowering interest rates. I mean, they're close. They're gearing up for it. Uh, they're forecasting three rate cuts uh, this year, a quarter point each time. So we're almost there. But until that happens, uh, you know, I, it's hard to declare the coast is uh, the coast is clear here. Uh, with rates this high, the yield curve is inverted as it is. You know, that puts a lot of pressure on the financial system, banking system. And so, you know, things can go off the rail. So, you know, I, I'm feeling pretty good about the economy. All the trend lines look really good. Uh, the, the risks of recession are starting to fade. I even think there's some upside risks potentially uh, for the economy as well. But until the Fed starts cutting rates, I don't think we can uh, declare victory. What would an upside risk be? What would it look like? What we got in 2023, I mean, uh, it looks like GDP growth in 23 is going to come in at 2.5%, which is really very good above most estimates of the economy's potential. And that happened because we got a lot of growth in the labor force and labor productivity growth was also very strong. And that could continue uh, into 2024. And if it does, then we have more room to run. We can get more growth without uh, uh, having any pickup in inflation and if they mm -hmm. can cut that's an upside scenario. Steve, uh, what do you make of what Mark has said here? Elevated risk of a recession at about 25 percent. I guess normal is something in the 15 percent uh, uh, percentage rate. What do you say? Well, I've been reporting through our Fed survey, Tyler, that the recession risks were as high as 60 percent last year. And now uh, in the December survey we did, they went down to 41 percent. So if Mark tells me 25 percent, I'll take that as a victory and a really good sign. I, I understand why there's something of an elevated chance. You want to go back to normal, which would be on 15 percent. But, uh, Tyler, I want to lay out for you what I've been thinking about here, which is I, I, I think the Fed can cut three times here beginning in May, which is not what the market's after, but it gives it a little more time, can do it three times May and then July, and July I like because it's just before the silly season when it comes to the elections, and, and it's not a factor there. And then again in November, because that November meeting happens two days after the election, and then it has an option if it needs to or wants to, to do a fourth one in December. So that's my latest thinking, Tyler, that the Fed uh, can pencil in three, and, and there's been some precedent here for Powell liking to do things every other meeting. And one of the things that's interesting to me is the Fed's concern about a resurgence of inflation, what I call its fear of the Twin Peaks. And you, you see that when you look back at the early 1970s, you can see the two Alpian uh, uh, peaks there when it comes to inflation. And then you see we got the one peak now, and it's you, you, you know that between those two peaks in the 70s, the Fed cut interest rates. And that's why I think the Fed's going to be careful here and more careful than the market is projecting. All right, we're going to take a quick uh, pause here, and I'm going to ask you both to stand by as we go out to Rick Santelli, who's tracking the action in 20-year bonds. Rick. Yes, Tyler, we just had an auction, a reopening of 20s, 
uh, the tune of $13 billion. The auction just buttoned up the grade. D is in dog. This was not a pretty auction. I will hit the highlights. If you look at the bid to cover, 2.53, it equals March, but you have to go back to October to find a lower number. And indirect bidders, indirect bidders and dealers are at the worst level since Nova of 21. Let me explain. Indirect bidders, those are, well, uh, some of the most important bidders, foreign entities. They were definitely not showing up for this auction. Dealers ended up taking 17.3%. Their 10 auction average is 11%. Like I said, worse since November of 21. And as you look at the chart going back to the second week in D, should we close here? It will be a five-week high yield close, just like 10s and 30s. And as you look at the intraday and the two-day, what is notable here is, is that we are trading above yesterday's high yields. D is in dog. Tyler, back to you. D as in dog from Rick Santelli. Thank you, Rick. Uh, gentlemen, stick around. We're going to go to uh, Diana Olick with the latest housing market uh, data. Diana. Well, Tyler, you were talking about consumers and two sets of data out this morning show consumers are getting back into the housing market thanks to the recent drop in mortgage interest rates. Mortgage applications to buy a home jumped 9 percent last week compared with the previous week, according to the Mortgage Bankers Association. They were still 20 percent lower than the same week one year ago, but they have been rising steadily for the past few weeks. Mortgage rates last topped out around 8% in October and are now back in the 6% range, although they did make a move higher this week and today, now to 6.88%, the highest since December 13th. Now, in addition, we saw a big beat on homebuilder sentiment in January. It jumped seven points to 44 on the NAHB's monthly index. The street was looking for just a two-point gain. Anything below 50 is still considered negative, but it has now moved 10 points higher in the last two months, and it is now at the highest level since September. September, builders say, again, it's all about lower interest rates. And of the index's three components, current sales conditions rose seven points to 48. Sales expectations in the next six months up 12 points to 57. That's back in positive territory. And buyer traffic rose five points to 29. Fewer builders also are cutting home prices, 31% in January, down from 36% in the previous two months, and that is the lowest share since last August. Tomorrow, we'll get a read on how all this new confidence is playing into housing starts and building permits. Tyler? So, Diana, this, the, these more sprightly numbers, I guess, have to do with, with where rates were in October, how they have receded a little bit. Uh, and that seems to be enough to have changed the sort of mindset among buyers and sellers. They're not as high as they were. They're certainly not as low as they have been for the past <laughs> decade, uh, but enough to get them feeling better about buying, selling and building. Yeah, we all know, Tyler, that home buying is a very emotional process. It's not just about being able to afford it, but it's like feeling that you should be able to afford it. And that 8% handle really had buyers out of the yeah. market. Even 7% was too high. But on this 6% range, as you said, we're twice as high as we were yeah. in the first two years of the pandemic. We had more than a dozen record lows in that rate. But buyers are, you know, we know there's a lot of pent-up demand out there and not a lot of homes for sale. So still people coming back to the market thinking that the 6% range perhaps is now doable. But again, some people are now qualifying for loans that they didn't in the 7% range. Mm -hmm. But we still have to talk that affordability. Home prices are still rising and very overheated. So it remains to be seen how much of those applications, how much of that interest really translates into sales. All right, Di, thanks very much, Diana Olick. Let's get back now to Steve and Mark. 
uh, and talk economy. I, Mark, my question for you, and I don't mean to, to be an apologist at all for the administration here, but you say that the economy, in your view, is about as good as it gets. But it sure doesn't seem to feel that way to the American public who, who quote, blame the Biden administration for whatever economic woes are that they sense. Why do you think that the administration has not been able to tell a positive message about the economy and point out that the one thing that I suppose has taken place on Biden's watch that is really not good, which is inflation, was had really less to do with his policies and more to do with monetary policy over which he had no control and fiscal policy, which put large slugs of stimulus into the system, most especially in 2020 when he was not in office and then again in 2021 when he was. Yeah, you know, Tyler, I think uh, Americans still feel the sting of the high inflation that we were suffering a year or uh, two ago. I mean, prices for many things are much higher today than back a couple, three years ago, uh, in particular for staples, you know, things that people just, you know, have to buy. Uh, no, eggs and milk and laundry detergent. And it's all it's all outrageously higher, it seems to me, than it was two yeah, years any, ago. Any person I talk to, I say, hey, you know, how do you feel about the economy? They say, I don't feel so good. I go, why? They go, well, I'm paying more for stuff. And I go, well, what stuff? And it's, you know, it's kombucha tea. It's uh, ramen noodles. Everyone's got their ramen noodles. And I, I think, you know, it's just going to take time for people to feel better, you know, as their incomes continue to improve. I mean, the job market's great. We're getting a lot of wage growth, uh, plenty of uh, open positions. So that's all good. Inflation is moderating. So with each passing month, I think the sting is going to be less painful. And, you know, I, I do think over the course of the coming year, people will feel meaningfully better. And I do think that will have bearing on the election. I mean, I do think until people, you know, feel better about the economy and buy into what I've been saying about what I'm saying about the economy, you know, the election is the election's going to turn on that. In other words, they're going to get more comfortable with where prices are. Yeah. They're going to see some of the other yeah. uh, more salutary sides of the economy. Steve, how do you react to that? And I, I would throw another thing in there. There was fiscal stimulus. There was monetary stimulus that contributed certainly to the growth of inflation uh, in the 2021, 22, 23 period. But there's another thing there, and that is rising wages. A lot of states, a lot of municipalities raised wages by fiat and said, you've got to hit a minimum wage of X dollars an hour. Companies did that, but they didn't stop uh, and eat those costs. They passed those costs on. I mean, go to a Starbucks. It costs a lot more than it did three or four years ago to get a Starbucks coffee. I should be in such pain. I mean, this, these, are, these are not... Uh, uh, um, uh, essential items. There are a lot, a lot of other essential items. But the same thing was going on there. Higher wages were pushing through the system, and those wages were resulting in part in higher prices. Yeah, that's the way it works. It is important <laughs> the way you tell that story, uh, Tyler, whether you meant to or not. But in the story you told, it was prices driving wages, not wages driving prices. So there wasn't necessarily a wage price spiral from an economics point of view, which was important. Um, but you're right. And, and, and by the way, that sequence is also significant for how people feel in that you're always a little bit behind in that context. Your wages mm -hmm. may go up to meet those higher prices, but they're always going to be behind. We are just now, Tyler, in a period where um, wage gains have been positive on an inflation-adjusted basis. 
Um, I was just looking. You mentioned milk. You know, the price index remains quite a bit above where it was. We, we are not going back to those prices before the pandemic. No. Um, and and in part, the reason for that is, well, if you reduce the prices, you're also going to end up reducing the wages. And that's politically unpalpable as well. So the story here is that um, over time, people will get used to a new price level. And over time, their wages and their productivity should rise to compensate for that. But for many, it hasn't yet. Overall, on average, it is. But that means that some people are still lagging behind. Whether or not that has an impact on the election eventually. And I like the way you told the story in that it was both administrations that provided the stimulus. But, you know, the old the buck stops here, I guess. The yeah. buck inflates here in the, in the case of Biden. He was the one in charge. He also added to it through fiscal stimulus, and he's the one taking the blame. Yeah, very. It's hey, John, very let me just push back, going just quickly on that last point. I, I, you know, there's a long list of reasons why inflation got uh, out of control, but uh, you know, I, I don't think I'd put the uh, fiscal policy uh, uh, at, at the top of the list. It may not even be on the list. I mean, the, what really drove the inflation was the pandemic, the supply chain disruptions, the labor market yes. disruption, and the Russian war. And monetary policy also played a bit of a role. I mean, I think we can all agree the Fed was slow in raising rates in response to the rising inflation. But fiscal policy, uh, certainly not at this point in time. I, I just don't see it. Well, that's that's interesting because I, mean, Mark, I think I, there's a lot in the stew there. I disagree. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I don't know where you put a percentage of, of effect or influence on, on fiscal policy. But, but I didn't mention the war in, in, in uh, Ukraine, number one. And I didn't mention... Uh, the other thing there, which uh, which you did mention, I can't remember what it was. What did you just say? Uh, pandemic. Martin? The pandemic yeah. and the supply yeah. chain. That, that certainly right. contributed to, to yeah. rising costs. Steve, final yeah. thought quickly. Tie it up. No, just, just quickly. And Mark and I probably should have this debate offline. I'm sure he has some good data on this. But my sense is that there was an overstimulation. I don't know that it was the wrong policy at the time mm -hmm. in that what we were afraid of again during the pandemic uh, we, we didn't know all the risks that were out there, and maybe overstimulating was the right risk management call. But if people didn't have so much money in their pockets, their supply chain problems would not have been as severe as they were. So I had called for, at the time, a more attenuated stimulus package. Um, I think that would have been more helpful. And I also think the Fed should have responded to that fiscal package as the size of it was and started cutting and easing back on, on quantitative easing sooner, and we might not have had the inflation outcome that we had. Interesting discussion, gentlemen. Thank you very much. We'll do it again soon. Mark Zandi, Steve Leisman, appreciate it. All right, let's talk about uh, more on fiscal policy. Next guest says that should be the top investor concern uh, and not the timing of rate cuts. For more, let's bring in Jamie Cox, managing partner at Harris Financial Group. Jamie, why don't we pick up where we left off? How contributory do you believe fiscal policy was to the inflation that the country experienced over the past two, three years? I think it was critical. I mean, if you rewind the clock back to the financial crisis in 2008, you had monetary policy wide open, but fiscal policy sort of petered out. And we had the defense sequester and you had fiscal policy, which was basically absent. So you had monetary policy that didn't really contribute much of anything to inflation for a number of years. But then you fast forward to the pandemic and you had this double barreled approach where you had both monetary policy wide open and fiscal stimulus wide open. I mean, you're basically raining money from both sides. So it, the fiscal piece of this was one of the biggest factors. And it wasn't just one. 
It wasn't just, you know, the CARES Act. It went all the way through infrastructure. And it seems to keep on going. And then including in that is also the tax cuts that came along with the tax cuts and job acts which came before the pandemic. So you had a lot of fiscal stimulus. And I think that is probably the largest contributor to the equation because monetary policy is a little bit laggy. Fiscal policy is very quick. And yeah. so I think that is, to me, one of the biggest pieces. And I well, think that can, is- You can even go back and throw into that, that fiscal stew, the 2017 tax cuts that took effect in 2018, and they ripple through the economy, as you know, at a lag. Uh, maybe it's not the lag that monetary policy has, but, but nonetheless, it does take a while. And I would argue that, that, that the fiscal stimulus that was put into the economy in 2020 and to a lesser degree in 2021 was to war, was insurance to ward off potentially an existential risk uh, to th- millions of jobs and the economy's uh, ongoing strength as a whole. You talk about a fiscal cliff redux and how to avoid it. What do you mean by a fiscal cliff redux and, and why is it a, a, an ominous prospect? There, there are a lot of parts of the Tax Cut and Job Act that, re, that sunset at the end of this year. It's not as bad as the Bush tax cuts where everything just sort of mm-hmm. reset. Mm-hmm. But there are critical pieces of this legislation, which I've been on the Hill a little bit lately, that a lot of lawmakers are very focused on. And there have been some bipartisan you know, workings here all of a sudden, which is actually positive news on some of the less onerous pieces of this, like extending the child tax credit or expanding it, You know, going back to the bonus depreciation. These are very stimulative pieces. Those are direct payments to people and also, you know, allowing depreciation increases cash flows for investment. So that's that's important. But there are there's a much larger piece of this, which is Section 199A, which is the 20 percent pass through deduction. And that's critical for small businesses like plumbers and electricians and things like that, that there is some movement on that. But that's going to be a, a bigger problem, because if you take away some of that pass through deduction and increase taxes on small business at the same time, they're paying higher interest rates. That's going to, you know, hit the service side of the economy pretty hard. Mm-hmm. So that's something we need to get fixed and get fixed quickly because we, if we sunset and put everything back in the ordinary income tax rates for many of these service providers, it's going to change the job outlook. Uh, you'd reduce their profitability, you reduce the ability for them and the capacity to hire or keep current staff at certain levels. Yeah. So, so that's really important. I'm hoping that it will work itself out. Um, I, I do see some movement on the Democrats side. This was largely the pass-through deduction was largely from the Republicans, but the Democrats seems very, very interested in getting this done. So hopefully we may get, you know, some of the, you know, bigger pieces. We have the SALT deduction that is really a problem for the Northeast, uh, in, in particular for lawmakers in the Northeast trying to get reelected. So I'm not sure how that one will work. Yeah. But on the pass-through deduction that actually affects the economy, I think we have a decent chance of getting that done. But if it doesn't, and we continue to have these, you know, even this week, we have a, a CR, another another government shutdown potential. We're just going to be going rolling through right. these all year long. And that, to me, is way more important than monetary policy because the Fed's told us what they're going to do. They're going to lower rates a couple times this year. They're not going to raise them any further. It's very unlikely they'll do so. That's a pretty good operating environment for investors. So that's why I think fiscal policy is way more important now. All right, Jamie, thanks very much. We'll see you again soon, uh, probably on a Fed day. That's my guess. Jamie Cox, we appreciate it. Coming up, Bank of America is uh, crowning the king in streaming, saying Netflix has won the so-called streaming wars, game, set, match, and between password crackdowns and advertising opportunities. This might just be the beginning for the media monarch. The analyst behind that call will join us next. Plus, China just passed Japan to become the world's largest auto exporter. Can you believe that? 
So are they a serious threat now to American automakers, not to mention the Japanese, the Koreans? We will look at whether the West should be worried when the exchange returns after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, Peacock made uh, its move in the streaming wars over the weekend with the exclusive rights to the Chiefs-Dolphins-Taylor Swift game. But our next guest says the streaming war is already over and that Netflix is the clear winner here. She's got a buy on the stock, just up to price target from 525 to 585, a 20% upside from current levels. Joining us now, Jessica Reef Ehrlich, B of A Securities Analyst. Jessica, nice to see you again. How have you been? Great. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're so glad you could be with us. So, uh, game, set, and match. Net, I guess I, I, I can't quarrel with your, with your conclusion here. If I were cutting the cord uh, and I said, okay, now what do I do? My number one default choice would be Netflix. Easy. Not even a question. I mean, Netflix is what the old bundle was, all, all in one service. So, it, you know, it has something for everybody. It cuts across every demographic. And there really are very significant growth drivers, including, you know, what, sort of what you're intimating, which is their engagement is so strong. Yeah, their engagement is strong. How is the crackdown on password sharing going? I'm asking for a friend here. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. They've had really good growth since they started cracking down, you know, the, the password sharing crackdown. But it feels like there's a long way to go. They've said several quarters. Most people, anecdotally, that we speak to haven't, haven't been touched yet. So it does feel like there's still a, a fairly decent runway from password sharing crackdown. Um, there's also a runway, I mean, just think about how many you know, broadband homes there are in the world and how many connected TVs there are. There, there, you know, there's, there's a very long runway for subscriber growth, and they have the content. A couple of years ago, there, there was, as I'm recalling, you can correct me on this uh, if I'm incorrect, there was a concern that Netflix was spending so much on new content generation, some of which has paid off beautifully, but some of which, you know, it's a hit or miss business. But now its top 10 list has been dominated, you say, by third party content, which can't cost them as much as original content generation. How does this play into their current profitability picture and into their future profits? Excellent point. Um, we, you know, the underlying drivers in, in the media and entertainment sector are, are all really positive for Netflix. For one, 
viewers continue to move from linear to streaming. Um, so that's a positive. The, they do dominate, their, their own content for television viewing is, is actually doing very well. But if you look at their, the third party acquisitions they have in film in particular, they're do, it, it's amazing. You know, their just engagement is really strong and they dominate most of the streaming charts. So the trend, you know, for, for years, a lot of the studios, the traditional studios, pulled back content and only kept it in their own walled garden, wouldn't sell to Netflix or anyone else. That's opening up. It, does, it just didn't work. Warner Brothers Discovery has way too much content to put on their on Max. And Universal is selling movies, Sony selling movies. So the ability to get third-party content, yes, it's lower cost, but it's also quicker to get on onto the schedule. You don't have all of that production time. And they're known, it's known content, so you don't have to market it that much. So it's it's like a win-win. It's a win for the studios because they're selling content, but clearly a win for Netflix because they're getting access to top quality content. At, lower prices than it would cost for them to produce on their own. One of the numbers, uh, and I, oh, by the way, I was watching Netflix last night. Weirdest movie I think I've ever seen. Ethan Hawke and Julia Roberts were in it. I have no idea uh, what the name of it was, but it had the weirdest <laughs> ending I've ever seen. One of the numbers that I was drawn to is forecasts for profitability and gross margin increasing uh, in t from 2023 to 2024 and again into 2025. How are they doing that? This is just the beginning. They are the only profitable streaming service, but they're, now the leverage will start to kick in because they, they are scaled. They're you know, almost 250 million subs, probably over when they report next week on a global basis. But the drivers are, as you had already mentioned, the password sharing crackdown, and as I said, continued growth in, in subs worldwide. But also they have AVOD or advertising video on demand. Mm -hmm. And given the change in pricing where they're, you know, I don't want to say pushing, but really like if, if, if you're worried about budgets and spending too much money, then it's, it's, it's really a great offer. You get four to five minutes of advertising targeted. So it's interesting to you. Uh, in premium content. So the advertising platform is just, just, just beginning. This is a three to five year growth driver. Then there are price increases. They surprised the market with a price increase mm -hmm. uh, last quarter. And you, you know, we'll see what the churn is, but maybe not that high. And then there's bundling, which is really interesting because what we're starting to see are things like Verizon offering Netflix and Max together for $10 mm -hmm. with, with advertising. That's a bargain for consumers, but it's great for Netflix and Warner Brothers Discovery because it decreases churn, decreases SAC or marketing, and increases the customer lifetime value. So there's, there's just a lot to like here. All right, Jessica, it's always great to see it. What, what was the name of that movie Thank again, you. AJ? Thank you so much. Leave the World <laughs> Behind was the movie. All right, go look it up. Jessica, it's always great to see you. Nice to have you back. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Coming up, EY unveiling its first ever deal barometer looking at the state of M&A in 2024. The sectors they are watching and how the Fed could end up end the entire deal-making environment ahead. But first, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun in Kansas speaking to workers uh, and the CEO of Spirit Aerosystems, which built that Max 9 fuselage that had the door plug pop out. We'll tell you what he's telling them and what Boeing's next steps are. The exchange is back in two. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. click, click, click. Writer's block? 
Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Julia Borston with your CNBC News update. Colon cancer is now the deadliest cancer for men under 50 and the second deadliest after breast cancer for women under 50. That's according to a new study from the American Cancer Society. Rates for colon cancer have been rising for 20 years, though it's unclear why. It's become more common in younger people. Some experts believe increasing obesity rates and unhealthy diets could be major factors. The U.N. World Food Program said it was working with Zimbabwe to provide food to its rural population as El Nino threatens to worsen the country's drought crisis. The agency said today that the food shortages have put 2.7 million people, almost 20 percent of the population, at risk for hunger because of poor harvests from drought. And discount grocery retailer Aldi announced plastic bags are out at its 2,300 stores. The company said the decision was made to help reduce costs and to be more sustainable by preventing almost 9 million pounds of plastic from entering circulation. Aldi will have reusable bags available for purchase. Back over to you. All right, thank you very much, Julia. And coming up, China surpassing Japan as the world's largest auto exporter, and that is worrying some automakers in the West and elsewhere. We will look at how real the threat is and who's most at risk next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. An influx of Chinese cars is terrifying the West. That's a headline from The Economist last week. This as China has been crowned the new king of the global autos market, overtaking Japan as the top exporter in the world and not by a small difference either. China Passenger Car Association says the country shipped more than 5 million units overseas in 2023, while Japan is expected to lag behind that number by almost a million units. Uh, the Chinese EV maker BYD has overtaken Tesla as the top EV seller in the world uh, over the past quarter. And my next guest says China's well positioned to keep growing market share from here. For more, let's bring in Johnson Wan, uh, head of China Industrials, New Energy, Mobility and Commodities Research at Jefferies, based in Hong Kong. Jonathan, welcome. Good to see you. Where is China dominating in selling exported vehicles? Well, if you take a look at the, uh, thank you, Hyla, by the way. Um, thank you. If, you. if you take a look at the uh, the market overall for China, uh, the overall passenger vehicle market continues to grow to begin with, right? It's growing 5% last year um, to a record high in terms of like uh, auto vehicle sales. And if you take a look at that, out of that 30 million of cars sold, 5 billion of them were exports. And the main export markets that China is really focused on is on Europe, and on Southeast Asian markets, right? If we take a look at the 5 million units, about 1 million um, units were sold to the, the Southeast, uh, about 1 million units were sold to Russia, uh, 400,000 were sold to Mexico, 200,000 were sold to about Belgium. Um, in terms of, uh, uh, and this is, we're talking about the passenger vehicle exports. If we talk about EVs, Belgium, Thailand, and UK, these are the top three countries for EVs in terms of exports. That's very interesting. And it's not as though, for example, 
Mexico does not have a domestic automobile. I mean, they're making American vehicles, but they have a large presence in manufacturing. So it's not just countries that do not have vehicle manufacturing. Russia has some vehicle manufacturing. Who can speak to the quality of the vehicles? But, but so at any rate, so this is in Europe and also in the West in uh, Mexico, not in the U.S. Why haven't Chinese companies come into the U.S.? Have they been blocked in doing so? Well, I think if you look at the export tariff that the U.S. is imposing on China, it's a 27.5% export tariff to sell cars to the U.S. So it's not exactly the friendliest country to sell um, cars mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. in the U.S. And obviously, we're all, we all know there's the geopolitical element <clears throat> also behind the scenes. Um, so China did actually export to the U.S., though, and they exported about 80,000 vehicles to the U.S. last year. But a lot of that are more commercial vehicles. If you take a look at BYD, for example, they have a huge bus factory in, in the U.S. So a lot of the electric buses Interesting. Um, that you see on the road are actually made by BYD. Is that US. right? I did not know that at all. You've, I've, I, it's one of the things I love about this job. I learn something every day, and thank you for that. Let, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Chinese domestic market. Uh, as you pointed out, the Chinese produced, I think you said, 30 million units. Is that right? Uh, over the past year, of which about 5 million were exported. That leaves 25 million or thereabouts to be consumed in China. Are those vehicles favored in China because they are low price, number one, because they are you're perceived as buying from the home team, number two, and or because the Chinese government subsidizes the purchase of domestically produced vehicles in a major way? Right. I think a lot of the growth in, that we're seeing in China it comes from the NEV side, right? If you look at the penetration rate for NEVs in China, it's now at 44%, right? We're talking about a similar rate in the U.S., which is at about 7%. We're talking about 20%-ish in Europe in terms of EV penetration rate. But the difference between China and that of the Western countries is that the affordability of the NEV cars are now much better than ICE, right? If I just quote you one example, right? If you take a look at the BYD 10 plus DMI. That is the one of the best-selling hybrid, or what we call PHEV vehicles. And you compare that to a Toyota Corolla, the initial purchase cost is already more than 100,000 RMB cheaper. And then you take into account the cost of ownership after five years or 10 years, you're saving 100,000 RMB. If you're a, what we call those um, taxi drivers, DD drivers, you're saving more than 200,000 driving uh, an EV versus that of uh, an ICE car. So that is one of the reasons why we're seeing this increased penetration rate. And as a result, we are seeing JV brands that are coming into China uh, previously now exiting um, China because they're losing market share, right? We have tier three brands like Citroen, Mitsubishi. These brands are now exiting China mm -hmm. uh, or will exit China in the near term. Very interesting, Johnson. Thank you very much for being with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Johnson Wan. All right, coming up, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun addressing employees at its embattled supplier, Spirit Aerosystems Day. Boeing used to own the company, spun it off. Well, this is the FAA has completed inspections of select 737 MAX 9 planes. Shares higher on that news, as you see, 2%, 2 percent, two point gain for uh, Boeing. 
We'll have the latest on this ongoing saga next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Boeing shares up about a percent now following news that the FAA has completed its inspection of select 737 MAX 9 planes. Also happening today, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun addressing Spirit Aerosystem employees at a town hall. Let's get to Phil LeBeau for more. Hi, Phil. And Tyler, that town hall meeting I've been told has just wrapped up. Uh, Dave Calhoun, uh, along with Pat Shanahan, CEO of Spirit Aerosystems, addressing employees there at the plant in Wichita, Kansas. This town hall, similar to what we saw from Boeing's town hall out in Renton, Washington last week, the idea here is to say to the, the workers there, we've got to do better. You cannot have these kind of uh, quality escapes that uh, lead to this kind of a situation. By the way, Spirit Aero. The quality controls there have been in question for some time over the last couple of years. This is not the first issue that has popped up. With regard to this issue, when it comes to the 737 MAX 9, as you mentioned, 40 inspections of grounded MAX 9s have been completed. The data is being analyzed by the FAA. When we see these planes return to service, when the FAA gives instructions to the airlines in terms of this is what you need to check for, that remains to be seen. Two airlines that in particular are eager to get these planes back in the air, United and Alaska. For a United, it's 79 MAX 9 planes that are grounded. Look at the sell-off here since this incident, uh, really in the last week, as we don't know how long these planes are going to be grounded here. And then with Alaska, it's a bigger part of the Alaska uh, percentage of the fleet, even though it's 65 planes, not 79, as you have with United. Quickly take a look at shares of Boeing. Remember, the Q4 results will be in two weeks. In two weeks. And that's when we expect that Boeing will give its 2024 and long-range guidance. Though, Tyler, we have seen this before with Boeing. If they're in the midst of an issue like this, they will say, we're pulling guidance. We're not going to give guidance until we have greater clarity. So mm -hmm. we'll see if that happens in two weeks when we get the Q4 results. Very interesting. Phil LeBeau, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Coming up, Ernst & Young just launched its first ever deal barometer. And this, they say, is the sector to watch for M&A this year. A TV exclusive. Uh, look at what else it and we'll look at what else it is forecasting. That is next. Welcome back to The Exchange. We could potentially be sitting on a great year for deals after a relatively dismal 2023. EY's first ever deal barometer shows M&A activity will rise about 12% this year, returning to pre-pandemic levels. According to the data, deals started to pick up in the last quarter, and that momentum may well persist. Joining us now is Mitch Berlin, Vice Chair of Strategy and Transactions at EY Americas. Mitch, welcome. Good to have you with us. So a 12% overall expansion in deal activity this year is what your baseline forecast is. There are different kinds of deals. There are the PE deals that became so famous uh, over the past couple of decades, and then the more strategic deals, which we've begun to see in energy. We've begun to see them in pharma and so forth. How does that split go? Is it, it's 12% overall, but is one going to be more dominant in terms of growth than the other? They're pretty close. So we would expect about a 12% increase in corporate and a 13% increase in, in private equity. So, so not too far away. So not too far away. And where, to the extent that you're able to look ahead, would you expect the deals of the strategic sort, the strategic combinations, to be 
sort of more prevalent? What sectors? So the sectors that they're more prevalent in are the ones where the multiples have gone down because the cost of capital is still high. So you can't have high cost of capital and high multiples and expect M&A activity. The three so se- not tech, not the big tech necessarily. Well, the tech multiples actually have gone down a little bit year yeah. over year. So we are seeing a pickup. I mean, tech is behind, but they're still the most dominant player from a sector perspective. So we'd expect a small pickup in tech, but we're expecting a pickup in life sciences as well as in energy, which we've seen a lot of big energy deals announced in the last quarter. Yeah, we sure, certainly have. I mean, right. and the granddaddies of them all, Chevron have been active, uh, Exxon, of course, doing their deal uh, in the uh, in the Permian area. Uh, let's talk a little bit about cost of capital. How critical is it that is, the, is it that interest rates, borrowing costs remain where they are or fall in order for your forecast of 12, 13 percent growth to come true? So for our, base, our baseline scenario assumes that the cost of capital will come down a point, a point and a half. If it doesn't, then I think we're looking at less, less of a growth in M&A. So it's very it's critical because, again, the multiples aren't coming down that significantly. So the cost of capital has to come down to see a reemergence of M&A. So the strategic combinations you see are in bio and life sciences, maybe in energy. How about the P.E. area? Would it sort of track the same? Do you expect the P.E. firms, the Blackstones, the uh, uh, the KKRs, the Carlisles to be active in that same area or in other ones? In the same area, a lot of tech. There's a lot of P.E. activity in tech and in healthcare as well. And, and where in tech specifically are you seeing it? I mean, obviously, the big tend to get bigger in these, in these circumstances. Right. A lot around AI, trying to get in mm-hmm. earlier around Gen AI and the fronts of there. Yeah. So AI would be the area to look at. Uh, who will be the active buyers? Let's talk about tech most specifically. Will it be the, the, the big whales in the business, the metas, the, the alphabets, the Amazons, the Microsofts, or whom? I think it will be the big ones. The big ones still have a very robust M&A pipeline. Whether or not they're acting on it right now um, doesn't necessarily indicate that the pipeline isn't there. So there is still an active pipeline that they will act upon when the environment is right. So the big guys will be the acquirers. Virtually anybody could be the acquiree in this right. case. And I assume I don't know this to be the case. I assume if you're looking at life sciences, you're looking not only at large pharma that may be having a pipeline uh, dearth, uh, trouble in there, but not, don't have enough. So they're buying drugs, but it could be other companies as well, couldn't it? Well, they're definitely looking to build, you know, there's patent cliffs coming, so mm-hmm. they need new R&D. So a lot of it is buying new R&D, but they can also be looking into med tech and other areas like that. Yeah. So the med tech area could be an, an area. Is there a a sleeper sector here that you haven't mentioned where there might be a fair amount of We mentioned energy. We bared down on, on life sciences. Are there other, and you said tech, uh, uh, are there others that, that could be out there as well? Well, I don't think there's sleepers, but we do. See, if you look at like the secondary level of heavy M&A activity, a lot in consumer products. We've seen some big retail deals in the past year, mm. particularly around brands. And so mm. we would expect to see a continuation of that. All right. Mitch, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on the survey. Thank you. Fantastic. All right. uh, Is that that the exchange? We're going to do some markets. Why don't we look at some markets, shall we? Let's do that. The Dow Industrial is off about 187 points, continuing its somewhat rocky start to the year so far. The other major barometers also uh, modestly lower today uh, as we uh, get off on a sort of back foot 
for 2024. That'll do it for The Exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch, the latest read on the economy with the Beige Book out in just a couple of minutes. Plus, we'll talk to one of the DOJ's top antitrust lawyers. Uh, well, maybe I should have asked Mitch about that, uh, about that blocked merger between JetBlue and Spirit Airlines. I'll join Dom Chu on the other side of this quick break. We'll be right back. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 